the past couple years have been fairly challenging for a lot of people, uh, maybe for most people, more challenging for some than for others. Lots of change, lots of setbacks, lots of unexpected and, and unwelcome hardships, many of which were imposed on us. Some have lost jobs. Uh, some have lost businesses that had taken a lifetime to build. Some have even lost loved ones. And while we are all hopeful that we are through the worst of it, you still hear a lot of people say it's going to get better or it's going to get worse before it gets better. Have you heard people say that? How many of you heard people say it's going to get worse before it gets better? Um, and many people who are saying this are people who have some degree of expertise or insight into what's, what's going on. You know, for example, economists. Uh, some economists, anyway, are saying that it's going to get worse before it gets better, which I'm not really sure if, I'm, if that's supposed to encourage me or warn me or what. I'm, you know, I'm not really sure how to take that. But have you ever been in a situation where you thought things just could not get any worse? Uh, I'm not suggesting at all that that's the state of the nation or of our community. Um, I'm fully aware and somewhat prepared for the possibility that things might get worse. And the reality is, like it or not, things can always get worse. That's just kind of the, the, the hard fact. Things can always get worse, can't they? In fact, uh, here's a, a few fun memes that uh, uh, just, just to remind you that things can always get worse. For example, it's, it's bad enough when your home is falling over a cliff into the river. But when you can't even grab a few keepsakes out of the front room because your home bursts into flames as it is falling over the cliff into a river, it's kind of an example of how things can always get worse. Or when, when you've got to paint several rooms in your house on your day off. Like just, you know, that means things just can't get any worse, can they? Well, actually, they can when this happens on the way home. Um, or, or how would you like to be putting on some gloves because you have been scheduled to give an elephant a proctology exam? Yeah, I mean, can't, get, can't imagine anything worse than that. Well, actually, yeah. Uh, things can always get worse. This is one of my favorites. It would have been enough to be stuck in traffic in your convertible behind a, a truck carrying some porta potties. Uh, that would be bad enough. But for things, for this poor soul, are going to get way worse very, very soon. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and you're, you're thinking, Jim, can these illustrations get any worse? Um, but this one says it all. Just when you thought things couldn't get any worse, the backstreet girls. Yeah. Just a little com comedic relief in the context of what, of, of what many people might consider a difficult topic. Actually, I have some really, really encouragement, uh, encouraging uh, words for you today, especially if you find yourself in a situation that you think could not get any worse. I've got some inspiration and some encouragement for, for you today. We, we all sometimes find ourselves in a predicament or a situation where it just seems like things can't get any worse. I, I want to look at somebody who is no stranger to such predicaments. King David was the second king of Israel and ruled, from, uh, ruled around 1000 BC. And, and while he went down in history as a very successful and very beloved and admired national leader, gifted general, wise statesman, and a gracious and compassionate ruler, 
and someone who loved God very deeply. Despite all that, much of his life was characterized by very desperate and dangerous predicaments. Having grown up as a shepherd, as a boy, he, he got the attention at a very young age of the reigning king of Israel at that time, King Saul, when he took down an elite enemy warrior named Goliath using nothing but his slingshot. King Saul rewarded David by giving him his daughter's hand in marriage, but King Saul quickly grew very jealous of David because David went on to rack up a whole string of military feats and exploits with the result that everyone in Israel became more and more enamored with him. And in fact, Saul became so jealous of David that he actually made several attempts on David's life, ultimately forcing David to flee and become a fugitive. So he went from being a hero to a zero in the eyes of King Saul in a, very, in, in a relatively short amount of time, running for his life, hiding out in various places. He did wind up attracting a small group of supporters, uh, about 300 men and their families who were daring enough to openly side with David who, and, and who were, as you can imagine, who, who were consequently, they also wound up having to flee. So David and his entourage spent a number of years basically hiding out in the desert, doing their best to avoid Saul and his army, who was determined to hunt him down and kill him and all of his supporters. And on several occasions, Saul came uh, very close to succeeding. But God had made David a promise when he was very young. That uh, through, through a prophet named Samuel, God promised David that he would one day be king of Israel. And yet here is the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the nation, trying to kill him. Despite this promise that he would be king, David knew that he would be dis disobeying God if he was ever even to think about going on the offensive against Saul. As evil and as crazy as Saul was, he firmly believed that Saul was God's appointed and anointed king and that to attack Saul in any way would be displeasing to God, even though Saul was actively trying to hunt him down and kill him. Such was the, the trust and faith that David had in God. And when you read the Psalms, when you read the Psalms, half of the Psalms are written by David. When you read them, you see this amazing trust in God that even when it seemed things could not get any worse but got worse anyway, you see this deep faith and trust in God, a, a trust and a faith in the middle of, of terrifying predicaments, fearing for his life, where, where he openly and, and honestly describes uh, how he's feeling and what he's thinking in many of these psalms. He's thinking things like, God, have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten your promise? Why aren't you coming to my rescue? I'm being hunted like an animal, and those who hate me for no reason, they're winning. They're closing in. In fact, they have me surrounded. Why don't you do something? They read the Psalms. I mean, they're so honest and transparent, and they're filled with expressions of, of real doubt and fear in the middle of desperate situations. But David in the Psalms, he always comes back around. To, thing, to saying and thinking things like, but you, God, are my refuge. You are my one and only hope. You are my strong tower, my fortress, and I will put my trust in you. No matter what he was facing, he always came back to that. 
I'm going to trust in you. You are a strong and faithful uh, uh, refuge for me. But there was one particular incident that was especially intense and one that is loaded with important truths that I want to explore today. And let me set the stage. David has been running from Saul for perhaps as many as 10 years now. And, and his initial group of 300 men, 300 supporters and their families, now doubled in size. So now there's 600 men and their families, and they have all taken refuge uh, for the past year and a half or so, actually a year and four months to be exact. They've taken ref refuge in Philistine territory. Okay, Now the Philistines were a group of people who were often at war with Israel. But David and his men and their families figured that they'd be safe there since it had long been widely known that King Saul had actually uh, turned against David and was trying to hunt him down and kill him. So the Philistines actually kind of carved out uh, a, a, a kind of uh, refugee camp for them in a place called Ziklag, which was on the Philistine border. But things were beginning to heat up between the Philistines and the Israelites. And some of the Philistine leaders were having second thoughts about, you know, being so friendly with David and his followers, all of whom were Israelites, um, historical enemies. Uh, they were starting to have seven second thoughts about extending so much kindness to them, despite the fact that David and his 600 men had fought alongside the Philistine army on several, several recent battles. There was some disagreement among the different Philistine leaders, some seeing David and his men as a huge military asset, but others not trusting uh, them and believing that uh, they might turn on them, you know, especially during what appeared to be an imminent battle with Israel. So the distrusting leaders prevailed, and they sent David and his men packing. He said, you've got to leave. You've got to get out of our territory. You're not welcome here anymore. And uh, they sent them packing back to their refugee camp in Ziklag, where their wives and children were waiting for them. So once again, after having about a year and a half of respite, David and his men are forced to go on the run. They are no longer welcome among the Phil Philistines, and they're still not welcome in their homeland of Israel, and they have no place to go. How could things possibly get any worse? Well, things do get worse, a lot worse, as David and his fighting men approach Ziglag, they see smoke, lots of smoke, way more smoke than, you know, campfire smoke coming from a refugee camp. The closer they get, it becomes obvious that the entire camp has been set ablaze, intentionally destroyed, and there's no sign of their wives and children, which at this point, you don't know if that's good news or bad news, you know, uh, are they dead, are they alive, where are they? They have no idea. As they arrive back in Ziklag, it becomes apparent that their camp had been raided and their wives and children carted off. Everything has gone from bad to way worse. Can you imagine? I mean, the men, upon receiving, first of all, receiving the bad news that they're no longer welcome among the Philistines, where they had, they had found refuge for a season. So now they're discouraged and demoralized, not knowing what they're going to do, where they're going to go heading out on a three-day journey back to Ziklag and just looking forward to seeing their wives and children again, you know, just, just to be with them and then figure out where they're going to go from here, except when they arrive there, their camp, they, they find, they discover that their camp has been destroyed, their wives and children kidnapped. Let's pick up this story in 1 Samuel chapter 30. 
David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. So three-day journey, about 60-mile journey. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the, the women and everyone in it, both young and old. Now David and his men don't know at this time at this particular point that it was the Amalekites. They have no idea who raided their camp or whether their wives and children were still even alive. But as readers of the story, we kind of get this information up front. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. To say that they were feeling hopeless and defeated would be a gross understatement. David and his men wept until they had no strength left to weep. Maybe you've been there. You know, feeling like you've lost everything and there are no options left for you. What little these men had was suddenly and violently taken, taken away from them. They knew that finding the culprits and reclaiming their wives and children was next to hopeless, if they were still even alive. Bands of water, wandering marauders were not uncommon. These nomadic pirates were very skilled at suddenly ambushing and raiding unsuspecting towns and villages and then disappearing without a trace. So, so everybody knew it was... Everybody was extremely distraught, including David, because of, of all people who knew how easy it was to disappear in the desert. I mean, that's what David and all these people had been doing for the last several, who knows how many years. You know, they knew if you didn't want to be found in the desert, you wouldn't be found in the desert. So they knew how very unlikely it was that they'd ever see their, their wives and children again. Going on, David's two wives had been captured, Aninoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. So in their minds, all was lost. And it seemed things just couldn't get any worse. But for David, things did get worse, much worse. His men have had enough. They start turning on David, threatening to kill him. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because his, of his sons and daughters. They start talking among themselves, look where our loyalty to David has gotten us. We've lost everything, and it's all his fault. And they had it in their minds to stone him. Where is God in all this? Why doesn't he do something? Has he forgotten them? Does God not care? Is he even paying attention? Has he forgotten the promise he made to David? Let's look at this next verse, this next incredible verse. But David found strength in the Lord his God. What? What does that even mean? I mean, get real. How could David find strength in the Lord given the obvious hopelessness of the situation? And given the fact that the people who have been most loyal to him up to this point, the people who are closest to him, his closest friends, are now, now talking about killing him. But David found strength in the Lord. Another translation says, David encouraged himself in the Lord. 
Have you noticed that God doesn't seem to mind allowing us to get into desperate situations, predicaments where it seems like there's no way out, maybe even where it seems like it's kind of the end of the road, where it seems things just couldn't get any worse, where all hope is lost. In fact, it seems that oftentimes God even orchestrates such situations and predicaments. It's difficult for us to understand why. I mean, why can't he just give us a comfortable and secure life with, with very little drama where we just contently bide our time on earth and then one day we're just taken to heaven? I mean, why can't that be our story? We don't always understand the mind of God. But we can't say he didn't warn us. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But he said, be of good courage. I have overcome the world. And what we've also been told over and over is that God actually has a purpose. Somehow, he has a purpose for these hardships and these struggles and these predicaments, these trials and tribulations. And he promises that in the end, it will always be worth it. In the middle of it, he is, and in the middle of it, he's never far away, and he is always compassionate and loving, even though we may not see it in the moment. But we all face those seasons where defeat and darkness and hopelessness surround us. And in those seasons, we have a choice. We have a choice. We can just give in to the discouragement and maybe even feed our discouragement by allowing our despair to develop into hostility and rage to the point where we just want to kill somebody. Or we can encourage ourselves and find strength in the Lord. Those are our choices. When everybody else was giving in to discouragement and worst-case scenarios and letting their discouragement feed their hostility and anger to the point where they just wanted to kill somebody, David, David chose to encourage himself by finding strength in the Lord. So how did he do that? What did that look like in a practical sense? How, how do you find encouragement and strength when you are discouraged and weak? Good question. Here's the short and simple answer, which we'll unpack in a minute. But here's the short, simple answer. You ask God. You, you invite God into the equation. You, you, you turn to God. This is what David did. Next verse. David encouraged himself in the Lord. David found strength in the Lord, his God. And then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. <laughs> Now, an ephod is like a sacred prayer garment that priests wore when you wanted to ask God about a specific situation. We don't really know how, how specifically how God communicated answers to prayer via the ephod. You know, it had an urim and a thummim and, and different things on it and uh, that God apparently used in some way in those days. Nowadays, followers of Jesus have been given the Holy Spirit which far more relational, you know, Jesus promised that his spirit would be in us, and as we grow as Jesus followers, we learn to hear the voice of God. And in those days, it was an ephod, all right? And so Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered, you will certainly overtake them and succeed in, in the rescue. So we're in a series called Thinking for a Change. 
which is all about how the way to change your life is to change the way you think. I came across this quote this week, uh, and you probably heard it. I think it's been, been around for a while. A bad attitude is like a flat tire. You can't go anywhere until you change it. You ever heard that one? I think it's brilliant. A bad attitude is like a flat tire. You can't go anywhere until you change it. David and his men's predicament is a good example of this. They're all tired. They're weak. They're discouraged. They're just ready to write everything off, just to accept defeat, count their losses, and give up. Stone their leader to death, and then just give up on life. Their thoughts are dominated by defeat and discouragement and fear that is rapidly becoming anger and resentment and increasing hostility. They have a flat tire, and that flat tire is going to keep them from going anywhere. But David turns to God. David brings God into the equation. David inquires of God. I mean, look at this scenario from God's perspective. God knew in advance all these things are going to unfold. He always does. He knew the Philistines were going to kick him out. He knew that at the very moment the Philistines were kicking them out, the Amalekites were raiding their camp and burning everything down. He knew they were going to come home to a very bleak predicament. But he also knew that if they pursued him, if, if they pursued them, the, the raiders, they would catch them and they would rescue their family. So God's just waiting. He's just waiting for someone, anyone, to inquire of him. They're all discouraged. They're defeated. They're crying till they can't cry no more. Crying a river. Entertaining the thought of executing their leader. And God is in heaven watching all this. And one of the angels says to God, why, why don't they just... At, you know, ask, invite you into the equation here. Why don't, why don't they just, all they have to do is ask you, can, can we pursue them? You know, why don't they just ask you? And God's going, I know, right? Just waiting. You guys gonna, I mean, I'm here, I'm right here, you know. And finally, David, after he cried till he couldn't cry anymore, David finally says, God, should we pursue them? God's like, yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, right. Are we going to catch them? Yes, yes. Bingo. Good job, David. And we can only guess what David's men were thinking when he announced, when David announced that God, he had prayed, God's going to give them success in pursuing the raiders and rescuing their family. I imagine some were encouraged, but probably others were kind of skeptical. But all of them were tired. All of them were tired, as is evidenced by the fact that shortly after they initiated the pursuit, a full one-third of them decided they were too exhausted to keep going. I imagine maybe the Amalekites had hauled off their food supply and, and then they couldn't, whatever they couldn't haul off, they burned. So they're trying to get by on what, you know, small rations that they were able to carry with them. So they're tired and hungry and weak. And I'm, I'm kind of skipping sections just to keep us moving along. Uh, you can read all about this. Uh, you can read it, I encourage you to read it when you get home. It's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. But 200 of the 600 men stay back. 400 continue their pursuit. Again, not even knowing yet who they're pursuing. So really kind of blindly guessing as to which direction they're supposed to be headed. But a day or two into their pursuit, they suddenly get a break in the case, a huge break. They come across a lone Egyptian slave wandering aimlessly all by himself. That doesn't sound like much of a huge break, does it? How is a lone Egyptian slave wandering around aimlessly all by himself a huge break, you ask? Well, it just so happens that as they question him, that they find out that this slave had fallen ill just a few days earlier. 
And it just so happens his master decided he wasn't worth the trouble anymore, so he abandoned him in the desert, just left him. And his master, it just so happens, was an Amalekite. And it just so happens that this Amalekite had taken, t- t- had, was, this Amalekite was part of a raiding party who among many other towns and villages they burned and looted just happened to burn and loot a camp called Ziklag. What are the odds? I mean, really? And of course, the men are like, well, can you lead us to where this raiding party is presently camped? And the Egyptian slave answers, absolutely I can. As long as you promise not to kill me, and not to hand me back over to my master who abandoned me in the desert and let me become part of your group. And David and his men say, deal. So here, verse 16. So he, the Egyptian slave, led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David had fought them, from dusk until, uh, until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. Got in fast cars and drove off. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that verse. Um, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. So David and his men wind up not just recovering and rescuing their wives and children and, all, and recovering all their goods and supplies, but actually wind up capturing all the plunder the Amalekites had raided from other camps and towns and villages in both Philistine territory and the territory of Judah. They wind up far richer, far better off than they would have ever been if this whole thing had never happened. Would look like their ultimate demise, catch this, would look like their ultimate demise turned out to be God's sovereign provision and blessing. And they would have completely missed out on all of it had it not been for one man who turned to God, one man who considered a possibility that no one else seemed to be able to consider, one man who thought differently than the rest and dared ask God, is it possible that we could actually catch these people and rescue our families? Now, the story isn't over. What about the 200 who were too exhausted to continue the pursuit? The 200 who stayed back to rest up while the others pushed on and engaged in the battle? They get nothing, right? I mean, come on. It was the others that did all the work, who never gave up, who tirelessly pressed on. Why should those who stayed behind get any plunder? I mean, sure, they'll get their wives and their children back, of course. But after that, well, they just missed out. Too bad for them, right? Well, Did these others really do all the work? Did they track down and rescue their families and plunder the raiders all on their own strength and skill? I mean, when they started out on this rescue mission, they had absolutely no clue what direction they they should even be going. They had no idea who the enemy even was. They had no idea what direction to go or who they were looking for. If it wasn't for a chance encounter with one abandoned Egyptian slave, they would have totally come back empty-handed. Yet the 400 who kept up the pursuit, their thinking was kind of like, 
we did this. We did all the work. We did all the heavy lifting. So you losers who stayed back, you don't get anything. You see, the 400 were thinking only of themselves. How, much, how they were better, how they were more deserving, more worthy, how they had earned this. Not those guys. We earned it. We talked about this last week, didn't we? They were thinking only of themselves. But David was of a different mind. David thought differently. David said, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He didn't say, you must not do that with the loot that you captured. He didn't even say, you must not do that with the loot that I captured. Because remember, just a little bit ago, they were triumphantly declaring, this is David's plunder. This was the custom. And you plundered somebody. You said, this, look what we've done. This, look what we've accomplished here. See, David knew better. David knew this whole thing was all God's doing. David knew that no one could take credit for this. I mean, I imagine at some point he maybe even reminded the 400 that just a few days earlier they had all lost hope and given up. They were crying till they could cry no more. They were, just, they were just ready to resign themselves to the idea they had lost everything. No, this was an act. This was an act of God. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. I mean, who's going to listen to what you say? Nobody's going to side with you on this. The share of what the man who stayed with the supplies is going to be the same as that of him who went into the, in, down to battle. All will share alike. If there's one thing you should always take away from these kinds of experiences, when it just seemed like things couldn't go, get any worse, and then they do get worse, and then God shows up in the middle of it, the one thing you should take away from these kinds of experiences is how good and powerful and faithful God is and how weak and powerless and clueless and dependent we are. These experiences should leave us with thoughts and feelings of deep gratitude and humility. A gratitude and humility that invites others in, that welcomes them to the table and invites them to share in the blessings, share the victory, so to speak, because after all, this was God's doing. David insisted that the plunder be shared with those who were perhaps too weary to continue in the pursuit. But that's not all. Just when you think things couldn't get any better, when David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah who were his friends. Remember the king of Judah, <laughs> uh, who had also been his father-in-law, King Saul, was still trying to hunt David down and kill him, but David still had some friends in high places there. And he sent some plunder to the elders in Judah, saying, here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemy. David is a shrewd man. This is an expression of his conviction that he will still one day be king of Israel, as God promised. And he's also very smart. He, he sent this ahead as an act of faith. David sent it to those who were in Bethel and Ramoth, Negev, and Jatir, and those in Aror, Sifmoth, Esmona, and Ar, and those towns in the J's and the K, and to those H-B-O-H, and to all those other places where he and his men had roamed. 
One more observation. David had been running from Saul, possibly for as long as a decade. Maybe a little less than that, but, but for a long time, for many years. The very next thing that happens in the story, and again, you can read it when you get home, is 1 Samuel chapter 30 and 31, and me, you can maybe back up read a couple chapters before and after, but the, the very next thing that happens in this story, this story where, where just when you thought things couldn't get any worse, they did, the very next thing that happens is Saul, the psychotic, murderous king who pursued David all those years in a battle between the army of Israel and the Philistine army, the Philistines who had providentially sent David and his men packing I mean, you can't even imagine what would have happened if they were still with the Philistines when this next thing happened. In that battle, the Philistines against the Israelites, they, they had just sent David and his men home. In that battle, Saul is killed. Actually, he commits suicide when he's surrounded in battle. And what that means is the threat to David is finally over. And just a short time later, David is crowned king of Judah. And then a short time after that, king of all Israel. Promise fulfilled. They were ready to give up just days earlier. They were weeping till they could weep no more. They had just lost all hope. But David had a different mind. And David had been used to God getting him out of situation after situation after situation. He knew the faithfulness of God. God works in mysterious ways. What, but what should be obvious, the, the obvious lesson? Well, in these passages, they're loaded with lessons and insights and truths, and we barely even scratched the surface this morning. But through the lens we are looking at this passage today, what should be very clear to us all is that David, had David not had a different way of thinking and seeing things, had he simply allowed his thoughts and feelings to be carried on the waves of circumstance like so many of his traveling companions, he clearly would have never seen the promises of God unfold in his life the way they did. That's an absolute certainty. Had he given in to the hopelessness and despair as his companions had done time and again, had he at some point taken matters into his own hand and killed Saul when he had the opportunity as many of his companions urged him to do in times past, had he not trusted in the Lord had he decided not to strengthen and encourage himself in the Lord, he would not have seen the promises fulfilled in his life, the promises of God. See, a bad attitude's like a flat tire. You've got to change it if you want to get anywhere. The Apostle Paul encourages us in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't copy the customs of this world. Don't think the way this world thinks. Don't give in to their way of thinking. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. How did David find strength in the Lord? How did he encourage himself in the Lord? by thinking differently than those around him, for starters. When everybody else was focused on the loss, on their predicament, on the negative, on the hopelessness, on the bleakness of the situation, David, having all those same thoughts and feelings running through him, he made a different choice in the middle of it all. And he turned to the Lord, his God. 
and he inquired of the Lord, and he invited God into his predicament, and he turned to God in an attitude of faith and trust, and the result was that he found strength. He found strength because he was looking for strength instead of thinking, what's the point? It's all hopeless. I'm tired. I've got nothing left. No, he found strength because he decided to look for strength. But he wasn't just looking anywhere. He was looking in the right place. He was looking to the Lord his God. And that's why the Psalms, despite you, when you read them and you hear of David's predicament and his doubts and his fears and how, God, please do something. Where are you? I can't see you. You seem to be absent. Yet he always winds up saying things like, God, is our strong refuge. He is truly our helper, helper in times of trouble. For this reason, we do not fear when the earth shakes and the mountains tremble, uh, t- t- mountains tumble into the depths of the sea, and when its waves crash and foam and the mountains shake before the surging sea. That's the thinking of David. Or this one, he reached down from heaven and he rescued me, and he writes things like this time and time again. He reached down. He was in predicament after predicament where his life was on the line. And he come to realize that God reaches down from heaven and he rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. It wasn't like, no, no, no. God's going to strengthen me and I can take this so I can do this on my own. No. He knew when he was outnumbered. He knew when he wasn't up to the task. He knew he couldn't pull this off on his own. God delivered him from his powerful enemies, from those who hated him and were too strong for him. Or this one. I love you. Some of you need to memorize these verses. I know that I will live to see the Lord's goodness in this present life. Ah, but then things just going from bad to worse. I just can't see how they can get any worse than they already are. I know, I know, I know that I will live to see the Lord's goodness in this present life. In this present life. Trust in the Lord. Have faith. Do not despair. Trust in the Lord. And I think some of you need to hear those verses this morning because you're starting to, to feel like there's no hope, there's no way out, it's so bleak, I don't know how this is going to turn out, I'm losing my courage, losing my joy. May these words of David come to life for you this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we all, at some point in our lives, find ourselves in situations and circumstances that just seem to be the end of the road for us. And we wonder if it's even worth continuing to press on. We wonder if, if it's foolish to, to have any hope. And yet, God, you have proven time and time again, over and over again, that what we're experiencing right now, as bleak as it may seem, is actually a setup. This setback is not so much a setback as it's a setup. You have orchestrated things to work out for our good and for your glory. And what may seem as our ultimate demise can actually wind up being supernatural providence and an avenue through which you want to bless us and increase us and multiply the riches for us manifold.
Um, help us to see what a good, faithful, loving, competent God you are so that we, like David, can say with complete and total confidence that we will live to see the Lord's goodness even in this present life, that we should trust in you, have faith, not give in to despair, but trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.